strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks again for being here. Appreciate you joining us. Happy Tuesday as we finally get back into the work week. Um, How bad are things at the border? This is the issue for me. Um, Having the same conversation over and over and over again is a little discouraging, but I think it's important that we continue to lay down our thoughts in a a way that makes sense to everyone. You can be, as I am, um, very upset and angry about what's happening at our southern border and at the same time be an advocate for immigration reform and something that is fair and just for people that want to come to this country. Um, I don't think you're going to find someone who is more anti-illegal immigration than I am, but more pro-legal immigration than I am. Uh, The two of them coexist. I think one plays off the other. To call everybody that comes to this country a migrant, whether it's legally or illegally, is a disservice to legal migrants. When you see the enormous number of people who are sworn in as citizens of this country that have done it the right way, that doesn't doesn't mean that I am not – mindful of some of the people and the reasons they're coming here illegally. I'm not a heartless person, but they're being mistreated as well. Uh, Here's uh, just one story. This is from the New York Times. South Portland, Maine. At a modest hotel a few miles from the ocean, uh, most of the rooms have been occupied this summer by families from African countries seeking asylum. 192 adults, 119 children in all. They're among the more than one million undocumented immigrants who have been allowed into the countries temporarily after crossing the border during President Biden's tenure. Part of a record-breaking cascade of irregular migration around the world. The hotel in South, I'm skipping down a little is among a handful in the region, in addition to Portland's family shelter, that are, that are offering temporary housing for hundreds of new immigrants. Maine is unusual in that it allows asylum seekers to receive financial support for rent and other expenses as a part through a general assistance program. So this story goes on and on about the one million people that are awaiting, that we are not processing fast enough. There are two groups of people that I, I think that are not represented well enough. As I just said, one of them is legal immigrants. I think legal immigrants need to be recognized. And to say to a legal immigrant that we are going to give the exact same rights to someone that did it the wrong way to the person that did it the right way is unfair. But another group that is not represented here are the legitimate asylum seekers that are coming. We know that one group says 65 to 70 percent. Another group says up to 90 percent. But whatever it is, well more than half of the people that are coming to this country seeking asylum by statistics do not have legitimate claims to asylum in this country. And. When this is happening, you're overwhelming the border towns. We've talked about this at great length. If you've lived in Arizona for any length of time, we all know how this has been handled in the past, not just by this administration. But when you look at how it's been handled, busloads of people have been dropped off. And I don't know if the bus station is still there. There used to be a bus station at 27th Avenue in Glendale. And buses would show up and they would just drop people off. And then you would have nonprofit organizations and churches that would jump on board to give people assistance as they made their way to wherever they were going to end up. Um, we know that um, this is still happening at, at Sky Harbor Airport six days a week. Busloads of people dropped off at Sky Harbor Airport out at the 44th Street Terminal. 
terminal for the SkyTrain, where they are then making their way into the airport and finding their way around the country. Buses, uh, airplanes, trains being used to, to move people across this country. And many of them do not have a legitimate claim to be here. So something should have been done a long time ago. And just as much because of the mistreatment of people, they're being lied to by the cartels about how easy this transition is going to be. Many of them are being forced into slavery when they are told that they can't pay back enough of their money or it's going to cost them even more money than they've already paid to stay in America. Their papers are confiscated. Many of the men, the young men, are forced into the gang trades and drug muling. And many of the girls have a much worse fate in front of them as they're forced into sex trafficking and we are a part of that happening because we haven't stopped it and that's where i think all of us should be able to find common ground for the people out there that think that there should be an easier path to citizenship or legal status in america i would love to have that conversation about how we make it legal how we can bring more good people into this country i'm all for that conversation But at the same time, you have to be open to the idea that these people are being mistreated and lied to by the cartels. And the way the rules are now, the only people that are winning are the cartels, period, end of story. That's it. That's who's winning. The extreme heat we're experiencing now at the beginning of September here in Arizona, imagine – and we had – just had uh, hikers uh, die and, and fall ill on the trails here in the valley this past weekend. Imagine people traversing the desert in southern Arizona. Imagine that journey and how horrible and how deadly it is. This is where we should be focused together. We should be holding our political parties, our political elected officials in both parties, accountable for doing something about this. Now, it's my opinion, and there are many that disagree with me, um, Here's here's a headline. Many migrants left in legal limbo as U.S. fails to file cases. As border crossings surge, government takes no action in nearly 50,000 cases, exacerbating a court backlog. So uh, roughly 47,000 of the nearly 284,500 cases completed in the U.S. immigration courts between the start of the uh, fiscal year, October to June – were October and June were dismissed because a document known as a notice to appear or an NTA wasn't filed. So we are seeing people fall through the cracks. We've got an overwhelmed system. We know that the crime that comes along with this, the people crossing may not be criminals. Some are, but it may not be criminals. But what is following them are the criminals. As the people flow in, as CBP and ICE are processing people as fast as they can, the drugs are coming in behind them. You know, here's how it used to be. Um, It used to be when carloads of people with carrying drugs or paraphernalia or whatever it was, they would come across the border. And they would have decoy cars. So you would have – and this is just a true statement. It's not, I hope it doesn't come across as racist in a way. But you would have a carload of usually young men that, that, that were either from Mexico or they looked Hispanic. They would be in a car that had nothing illegal in it. And they would drive from the border north toward either Tucson or Phoenix, but they would drive north. And they fit the profile. They may wait down the trunk or whatever so it looked like it was loaded with something. They would fit the profile. Border Patrol would pull them over and check their car. And while that was happening, the real drugs in a car following behind them, while CBP was distracted, would drive right on by. 
And that's a true story. That was the old way that it was done. And now it's no different with the misdirect where their people are coming across the border in which are making, you know, profiting the cartels in big numbers. And behind them comes the waves of fentanyl and methamphetamines and other drugs into this country. And I know it. You know it. But most of all, our government knows it. And our federal government is failing in this regard. So changes have to be made. Changes have to be made to prioritize how we stop this from happening for everybody involved. And I hope I hope that the talk of this, the continued conversation at some point brings a real legitimate conversation with the people that can actually do something about it. In a minute, we get you caught up on the big news stories of the day. We call it. Did you hear this? We'll do it in a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Lots to catch you up on. Let's do it right now. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. Over the weekend, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs announced that she won't debate Carrie Lake on stage, instead proposing a different idea altogether. Instead of a traditional debate, Hobbs is proposing two separate half-hour interviews for herself and Lake where the candidates have an opportunity to respond to each other. What are your thoughts on this proposal? I think that it's, um, I think it appears weak. I'm not saying she is weak. I'm going to be very careful. I think it appears weak. There has been a criticism from people on both sides of the aisle that say that uh, Katie Hobbs needs to be She didn't do it in the primary. She stayed very quiet, stayed out of the limelight, and didn't do much of any kind of a debate. And the criticism has been real. And now people in her own party are saying the same thing. You've got to get out there. You've got to get out in front. This appears as if you are afraid to debate. I think it's it's wrong for her. Uh, You know where I stand politically, but I just think this doesn't look good. And I think a spirited debate where people stand up for what they believe in. Again, I've used the word apologetics many times. Anybody that goes through seminary, goes through courses called apologetics. It's speaking about not what you believe, but why you believe it. You have to be able to defend your point of view. If you can't defend your point of view in a one-on-one debate, how are you going to run the state of Arizona and debate with the legislature and do the other things? That's a real question for voters. Democrats are going to vote for Democrats classically. Republicans will vote for the Republican candidate. But there is a huge number of independent voters that need to be convinced. This goes in the wrong direction for Katie Hobbs and I think when poll numbers come out, she's going to see that and she's going to have to some point debate. Shannon Gleave, director of food and nutrition at Glendale's Elementary School District, described to Concrete News the impact of inflation on school lunches. For 152 slices of bread, we paid about $3.18. This year, the cost is right at six ninety. Can the government help curb this issue? Well, I don't know. This is the inflation issue has hit everybody. And I, I don't want to belittle the problems of a school district. It's a real problem. It's the same problem for restaurants that are trying to feed people, for retirement communities that are trying to feed its residents, for prisons that are trying to feed its inmates. And unfortunately, it's affecting schools. We have got to do something about food shortages, and we've got to do something about food insecurity. I feel bad that it's happening to a school district, but they are not alone in this. This is happening across the board. So our are people going to jump in and help? I've asked before, why not help school districts the same way we help with food banks and other places like that? Why not have the community jump in and do something about this instead of it being a government solution? I think it could be a community-based solution, and maybe that can help, too. 
You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to catch you up on the big headlines. Chicago Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot commented on the migrant buses, saying that this is not the answer. I understand the pressures uh, that the people of Texas and some of the other border states are under. We see that on a daily basis. But the thing to do is not this. This is creating a human crisis. What should border states do instead? Well, that's, that's a great question. And if she answered that question, I would love to have hear how she would answer it. I don't have the answer to that. But I will say this, that what the border states are doing is absolutely no different than what the federal government is doing. Absolutely no different. The federal government has been loading people on buses, on trains, and on airplanes for a very long time to disseminate them, to get them from these border towns to other places across the country, and they've been doing it for a long time. This is a political maneuver by the governors of Arizona and Texas, especially Texas, and they happen to be winning in the court of public opinion, and they're winning the argument. So now what you do is go after the messenger and not the message. And I think they're losing this. These are sanctuary cities that say they welcome people that are in this country illegally, and now people are being brought to them, and now they're facing a little bit of what other border states are facing or what border states are facing in this every single day. And most of the country understands it's frustration from the border states, and it's time some of these Democrats started speaking to their Democrat leaders because party insiders speaking to each other goes much further than people from opposite political parties. A Florida judge ruled that a special master should be appointed to comb through the documents that the FBI found when they raided Mar-a-Lago. But it will be a while before we find out the results of this appointment. The special master, whoever's appointed, will take a period of weeks, if not months, to go through all of the material, thousands of pages, to weed out what might be subject to the attorney-client privilege. That's sort of ordinary. Do you agree with this appointment? Yeah, I think that, you know, the American people have been at political odds forever and ever and ever. And uh, I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. Uh, on my side of the political aisle, it was what was really a one-sided partisan investigation for four years into the former president by Nancy Pelosi, Adam uh, Schiff, and by um, I almost said Adam Sandler. By Adam Schiff and by Jerry Nadler. Let me make sure I get them straight. Adam Sandler had nothing to do with this. Um, and we thought it was a partisan investigation that was a hatchet job. Well, I can be honest and say from my political point of view, the same thing was happening in Arizona with the it. A special master, somebody impartial that both sides agree on is something that will give at least some people peace of mind. And I think it might close this door and it may take a while, but at least it'll get done. Good job, Julia. Once again, thanks. This is uh, that is. Did you hear this? We'll do it again tomorrow at 1120. We do it every day on the show. Uh, what we're going to do coming up in a couple of moments is talk specifically about the economy. There are some things that are coming our way that may be out of U.S. control once again. Is there something that can be done that could reverse that? We'll talk about it in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. Back in the 1970s, price control went away. Price control was a way where the government thought they could control prices and control the economy. It was a time when uh, governments were thought to be able to be more of an influence in the economies. And I will tell you that from a capitalist point of view, the less government is involved, the better off we are. Um, I'll give you an example. 
Here is a story that isn't price control, but it is interesting. Uh, California governor signs a fast food bill opening way to higher wages. A government-appointed council could increase wages for California's estimated half million fast food workers to as much as $22 per hour starting next year under a new law signed by Gavin Newsom on Monday. Um when you do something like this, you do not change the lives of minimum wage earners. It never, it, It's never happened because the cost of living increases. So let's say that classically speaking, when I say to you fast food workers, you think of the, the, you know, the big chains of, of companies out there that have fast food restaurants. And if they have to pay their employees $22 an hour and they need a minimum amount of employees, two things are going to happen. One is they'll reduce their need for a number of employees. You are going to see kiosks replace employees. That's just going to happen. Um, it's already happening. They're already testing in a lot of places, voice activated uh, at the drive through. Um, you can get them where you can go in and punch in your order. And when you walk inside. And you're going to see a lot more of that. So those jobs will go away. So those summer jobs that your kids get so that they learn how to have some responsibility when they get their driver's license and you tell them it's going to cost X amount of dollars for you to get your driver's license on my insurance. So I'm going to need you to get a job to pay your part of the insurance. Not that you couldn't cover it yourself. You're teaching your kids to be responsible. And you're going to have to have gas money. So go get a job, work four hours a day, two or three days a week, make enough money just to cover your own gas and insurance. Those jobs are going away or a lot of them are going away. In addition to that, the cost of living will go up so that those same fast food restaurants where a happy meal now, I don't even know what a happy meal is. I haven't bought a happy meal for kids in years, but let's say a happy meal is six bucks. A happy meal is now going to be nine dollars or eight dollars because it's costing that much more for the operation of that restaurant. That's just how life is. So what ends up happening is the lifestyle of somebody at the ground floor of wage earning stays the same. Subsidies will be needed for some, but you will be able to pay for the bare necessities. You will have the bare necessities, and that's where you will be. For higher income people, it's a nuisance, but you overcome it because you've got enough money that it doesn't make you change your lifestyle. Middle income people get squeezed. Let me give you a great example of that. Let's go in Arizona wages and California wages are so different because of the cost of living. I couldn't make I could not live the same lifestyle I live here with the same wage in California. Couldn't. I would live a completely different lifestyle if I was making exactly the same money because the cost of living there is different. So let's do it here in Arizona. Let's say it's $18 an hour, $16 an hour minimum wage. If you say there's going to be a $16 an hour minimum wage, even in fast food, um, first of all, you're going to lose a lot of people in other industries that aren't going to be able to pay that. So maybe they're going to have to. So let's say now across the board in the construction world that I've, I've come from, $16 an hour is what you have to pay somebody who was in the um, – who is in the basement in the, you know, the very beginning of their career. So they are what's considered on a job site a strong back and a weak mind. Your job is to show up, deliver the material to the skilled labor, learn the materials, learn the terminology, learn the tools, keep moving, get going, earn your keep, and you'll start to learn the trade. But you got to pay them 16 bucks an hour. We already gone over. Those jobs are going to start to dry up. But do you think the journeyman, let's go electricians in my trade, 
Do you think the journeyman electricians making $23, $24, $25 an hour are now going to jump to $30? they are not. Their wages are not going to jump because the money just isn't there to pay them. So what you get is what used to be a high-tech, high-quality, high-paying job. You've now squeezed that person because their cost of living has gone up. This part of the economy with where you're going to what either control prices, you're going to say you can't make any more or charge any more than this. You're going to see a reduction in that being available. In California, where they're saying they are going to phase out gas-powered vehicles, good luck finding a gas station in 10 years in California. I mean, good luck. If they're getting rid of gas-powered vehicles, that, I mean, they're going to be around for a long time, but they're not selling new gas-powered vehicles, good luck. You, you are going to see that industry dry up there. The oil companies in this economy, a conversation we're having, um, they have – and this is the headline has to do with uh, um, uh, the number of new oil leases. And they said it slowed to a trickle and that that's an issue and that um, these new oil leases just aren't out there. At the same time, you set that story side by side with a story that says, look what's happening Federal oil leases slow to a trickle, and at the same time, OPEC has agreed to a 100,000 barrel per day reduction in oil output for October. So we are no longer – are we in a place where we can increase by 100,000 barrels a day to offset that? And if they decrease even more, we increase even more? At what point? We are not there. I mentioned earlier, when it comes to diesel, for any of you out there that operate on diesel, if you own a small business, but you have, if you're an over-the-road trucker, if you have diesel equipment or vehicles in your fleet, if you are an excavator, if you've got a diesel-powered vehicle, you realize diesel fuel has not dropped in price as quickly as gasoline because it is not just a price of oil issue. It is a refining and delivery issue. It is a manufacturing issue. And if you think that the oil companies, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, if you think the oil companies are going to invest billions of dollars, billions with a B of dollars in refining capabilities in an industry that the federal government is telling them that they are going to do away with in very short order. Oh, by the way, we're raising your taxes. Oh, by the way, the EPA now has new powers. No matter what the Supreme Court said, the EPA has the power now for more regulations in your industry, so it's going to cost you more to do business. And California says you're going to be out of business by 2035. The Biden administration says the same thing. It doesn't matter that California is pushing everybody away from gas-powered vehicles and toward electric vehicles. And right now, they're telling their people, be careful when you charge your electric vehicle. Right now, as the grid is, they're challenged. And you're going to go from now until 2035? Less than 15 years? And it's just an impossibility. And this all does apply to our economy. So for the people out there, and I, I respect differing opinions. I really do. I don't mean this disrespectfully. But for the people out there that believe that it's it's necessary for us to do what we're doing right now and push off of gas-powered vehicles and push to electric vehicles, A, there are going to be huge implications environmentally for mining all of the natural resources that go into building those batteries. You understand that the environmentalist argument is not over when we make this transition. There are going to be huge fights about mines, huge fights about mining, number one. But also what's going to happen in this whole argument 
is that you've got to update your electrical grid, which you can't do fast enough. There are so many other issues in all of this, but the oil industry is going to push back and say we are not going to spend the billions of dollars necessary to expand to keep up with the demand for diesel power as long as you're telling us in 10 years we're going to be on our way to obsolete. We're not going to be totally shut down, but we're going to be much smaller than we've ever been before. And that's what's happening. That's the reality. So you have to acknowledge if you think it's necessary to go in that direction, you have to be okay with the growing pains that are coming. And many people are. I'm not. It's affecting working families in huge ways. But there are people out there that believe it's necessary. And if you do, then you're getting your wish. You're getting the president that you wanted. But for a lot of people, they're saying, I do not want this growing pain. The president talks about this great transition. It's going to be an expensive transition, and this generation is going to pay for it. I want you to think about your kids. My grandson. My grandson is going to be 11 soon. My oldest grandson will be 11 soon, which means in five years that kid's going to be driving, which is a whole different set of nightmares. But he's going to be driving in five years. What's the price of gasoline going to be in five years? How's that kid going to get to work? These are the things we have to think about as time flies. Are you willing to burden the American working class with the cost of what's happening here? And so far, the answer from this administration is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. A conversation we had earlier about uh, a a mixture of government money and private entities in trying to help the the, uh, issue of hunger. We're going to talk a little bit about that coming up in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. There was an old uh, saying in the in the 1960s that I think is where it was born in the 1960s. Where it was a protest slogan, and it was "Power to the People." And uh, I, I got to tell you, I, I love the slogan. It may have meant something to a completely different political party that I'm a part of, but "Power to the People" was just that. It was, um, and you hear people say we are we are speaking truth to power, um, where we are, uh, you know, we are the citizens of this country speaking to those in power and telling them what the truth is. And I'm all for that as well. But that should be something that both political parties buy into. Uh, The reason why I mention this is there's a story. uh, This is from Cronkite News. Uh, AmeriCorps has granted um, Arizona food banks more resources to help food insecurity. The idea that there's going to be tax dollars that are given, and I don't know if there are strings attached. I hope there isn't. The reason why I'm talking about this topic is we understand that food insecurity is happening all over the state of Arizona. Families, and the, the first thought is homeless people looking for a meal. And I think that's a big part of it, and it's always going to be. And if you look on our streets, there are more and more people that are homeless and hungry. I've told my story many times that homelessness has a face for me. Um, my cousin, who was um, like a brother to me growing up as young boys, and we lost touch when I moved to Florida, and we were separated from each other years, um, but we were still very, very close. His mother passed away when he was in high school. 
And he went off the rails, drugs and alcohol, and he became an addict and uh, ended up on the streets in Vegas. And he they found him dead in a homeless camp in Vegas. And it was heartbreaking for me um, to see this cousin that I thought was larger than life have him die in a homeless camp in Vegas. So for me, homelessness has a face. And I look at people and I think every one of those people has a story. You know, there are people that are suffering from mental illness and then they self-medicate or people that are addicts that all of that's true. But when you talk to people that are homeless, they have a story. And many times you'd be shocked at the story they have. Um and so for me, I see that in people when I see someone that's homeless. I don't automatically avert my eyes and hope they don't come to my car window or ask me for money. And I don't give people, homeless people, money very often. But I support organizations that take care of food insecurities. And there are more and more working families that are just trying to make it to payday with food on the table for their children. That's what the emergency food boxes at St. Mary's Food Bank last weekend. Thank you to everybody in the Action Alliance who showed up. But that's what we're talking about. Is families that are doing the right thing, that are working hard. And instead of these government programs, they get abused sometimes and there's a lot of waste and the oversight dollars doesn't really stretch that thin. These organizations, these private organizations like St. Mary's and St. Vincent de Paul and all of these others, um, United Food Bank in the East Valley. If you've not, if you're an East Valley person, look them up and just go look at the efficiency and the enormity of their operation in the East Valley. It is amazing. And um, thank God that they are there. Thank God that they're an organization of uh, full-time employees, part-time employees, but mostly volunteers that are looking at what's going on in the world and saying, I can help with money, I can help with talent, I can help with time to differing degrees, but I want to help. I want to be a part of a solution. And when you see how many hungry families there are by the immense amount of food that is being delivered around our communities, it humbles you if you're not one of those recipients. But it also, for me, made me want to double my efforts and say, you know, I want to be a part of something that's an actual solution. Yes, I want to be the solution in the short term and making sure that there are as few hungry people as possible out there. I think that's the short term goal. But all of the political things I talk about, all of the policy ideas I talk about, I truly mean them from a position of saying, I want to solve the problem so those people don't have to drive to St. Mary's Food Bank to get a box of food in their trunk. They're self-sufficient. And they want to be self-sufficient. These are not people that are looking for a handout. And to be able to give someone an opportunity to not need it is to me the biggest liberating thing on the planet. The old adage that said, I don't have a whole lot, but what I do have is mine. I've created it. I've earned it. There is, there's a sense in pride in all of that. It doesn't, you don't have to have a very nice car if it's your car. If you paid for it, you have a lot of respect for it. And I just want us to get there. And hopefully together, uh, whatever your political leanings are, we come to an agreement that gets us there. We all want what's best for America. Let's figure it out. And starting with hunger is one of them. In a, in a, in a rich place like we live in, people should not be hungry. And let's work together to solve that problem. And then if we can work together on that issue, we can work together on anything. You hear the music. I'm just about out of time, which means we won't be back until about 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. If you'd like to join us, I would love to have you. Hope you had a great weekend. Looking forward to a great Wednesday. Until then, God bless.